is our final series in the series that we've been doing, How to Read Your Bible. Uh, in the first week, we were encouraged to delight in God's Word. Reading the Bible isn't a chore that we need to do because we're followers of Jesus, but we're encouraged to delight in His Word. It's something that we're excited about and and ready to commune. It's an invitation from God. In week two, Dave gave us some great tips on how to read your Bible. Choose a translation that's best for you. Choose a time and a place and a plan to study. Understand the context of the passage. Read slowly. Ask questions. Pray to God through reading your Bible. Last week, we heard about the importance of Jesus being the lens in which we read our Bible. So we heard that Jesus is patterned through the Bible, he's promised throughout the Bible, he's present through the Bible from the very beginning to the end. And we also were reminded that Jesus is the view through which the Bible reads us. And we, when we get challenged or when we get convicted about what we're reading, we just need that gentle reminder to see ourselves as Jesus sees us, loved and forgiven. Well, the Bible is one of the best books I have ever read. It is in my top 10, definitely. It's probably actually my number one. Over the 30 years that I've been a Christian now, I've owned many translations through study and through ministry. But there are three Bibles that are very precious to me. So the first one I have here today, it's a bit leathery. This was given to me when I first became a Christian. Alistair gave it to me. Um, it's very precious. If I open it up, it, as you can see, it's kind of falling apart, which is very sad, but it's very precious. I keep it on my bookshelf. The second Bible I um, got was a little pocket Bible, and I used that in ministry for many, many years. I used it so much that it actually physically disintegrated into my hands one day. As this one did, the pages just fell apart, um, so I had to buy a new Bible. This Bible I call my midlife Bible because it is bigger print. I still, it's large print, which is fantastic. It's a bigger size, um, which unfortunately the pocket Bibles, I love the pocket Bibles, but I can't see them anymore. So I need my midlife Bible. And as you can see, I've been a bit proactive and I've contacted this Bible. So hopefully it'll last a little bit longer than my other one. But these Bibles are precious to me each day because each one of them has writing in them. I'm sorry if you are a librarian or you're a school teacher, but I love to take notes from sermons or devotions that I'm reading, those little aha moments I have with God. Sometimes I'll read a verse and I'll think that's so encouraging or inspirational and, and I'll underline it. Sometimes I've been reading in my quiet times and it's just like God is speaking to me in that moment and in that particular stage in my life. And I will write next to my little passage just the date. I'll write maybe a little comment about what God might be saying to me and just a little thank you prayer um, in my Bible. For me, the Bible just isn't an, an, a, a book about an extraordinary man who lived 2,000 years ago. It's a tool that I use every day for connecting with my Saviour, my Creator, 
my rock, my anchor. He delights in me and I delight in him and I get to see it each day when I open his word. So this morning we're going to explore a little bit more about how we can understand the Bible and how it relates to our everyday life. If you have your Bible with you, whether it's physical or whether it's um, on your phone, feel free to turn with me. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. Over uh, his 33 years on earth, Jesus made some pretty bold statements and this morning's passage that we're going to look at is definitely one of those bold statements. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sees a crowd, he sees his disciples and he sits them down and he shares one of his greatest sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And firstly, you can see that he shares some blessings. He blesses those who normally wouldn't feel or receive blessings. He blesses the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn. And then he shares encouragement to his followers. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness. You are the light of this world. Let your light shine. And then in the middle of this encouraging sermon, he comes out with this bold statement in verse 17. And we can read it together. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom in heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. This actually must have been a pretty bold statement because in his ministry, Jesus was constantly challenging the Pharisees and the Old Testament teaching. I actually took a scan, just a quick scan, of just one gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, and here on your screen is a list of the times when either Jesus and the Pharisees clashed or Jesus challenged the Old Testament teaching. So in chapters 5, 6 and 7, there's controversial teaching that Jesus teaches about the Old Testament law. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a man and forgives his sins and the Pharisees object to the forgiving of these sins. Only God can do that. In chapter 12, the disciples are picking up grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees see this and they object. In the same chapter, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, causing controversy. In chapter 15, the disciples don't wash their hands before eating. Oh, they need to go and see Narelle, but they defile the food. In chapter 19, the Pharisees challenge Jesus on his teaching on divorce. In chapter 21, Jesus challenges the sellers at the temple and his authority is questioned. In 22, Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees about paying taxes and marriage and Old Testament laws. In 23, Jesus lets loose and we have this whole seven woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and in 26 we have his trial and his death. 
In nearly every chapter, there is confrontation, a heated debate about the Old Testament laws and Jesus' current teaching. Just doing this quick scan of Matthew and the encounters, it could be easy to assume that Jesus' purpose was definitely to abolish the Old Testament laws and bring in this new law and this new teaching. And sometimes we can read the Bible like this. We discard the Old Testament, it's outdated, it was for Jewish people only, and we can focus just on the New Testament. But Jesus is actually quite clear in this passage that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. So how can we reconcile this? Well, one way of looking at this passage is not so much focusing on how or what the laws were, but why. Why were they put in place? These teachings and laws were put in place to establish and set apart a holy nation, a people group that were devoted to worshipping Yahweh, the way that they lived, the way that they loved God, the way that they loved others were to be an example to the world on how God loved the world. The Old Testament law asked people to honour marriage, honour parents, honour children and the community around them. Why? Because relationships and human life are cherished and important to God. The Old Testament law asked that God's people remember their creator and worship him only. Why? Because God knew that there's captivating beauty in created things and creating things. But these can easily be idolised over the creator. The Old Testament law asked that God's people rest and reflect and set apart one day of the week as sacred. Why? Because God knows our bodies. He knows our souls. He knows our longing for inner peace and deep connection with him. So unfortunately, over the years, legalism had crept in and rather than seeing these laws and teachings of the Old, uh, Old Testament as a guide to living holy and pleasing to God, it became a rule book to keep people in line, to punish those who were doing wrong, instead of living out of this posture of worship, God's people were living out of fear and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing a good job of keeping people in line. But to Jesus, this law was sacred. It was holy. Even though at times it looked like he wanted to abolish the laws, he says he came to fulfill it. If you actually delve into some of the passages that we saw before, in almost all of those passages where, passages where the Pharisees challenge Jesus' behaviour or teaching, Jesus backs it up with Old Testament law and challenges the wording and the meaning behind it. An example is in chapter 12 that we saw before and there's this scene where Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through the grain field on a Sabbath and some disciples are hungry, so they pick some grains of wheat, um, which I'm sure most of us would do if we're hungry. But those troublesome Pharisees see this and they challenge Jesus. Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. 
And then in verse 3, Jesus challenges this. He says, Haven't you read what David did when his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priest on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrates the Sabbath and yet they're innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Powerful and bold words, don't you think? As we read the Bible and the law and its teaching, it's important to understand that connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament law was put in place by a triune God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, who created humanity and wanted the best for its world. The New Testament law and its teachings are not a replacement of the Old Testament law. It's a correction, it's a realigning, it's a fulfilment of that same triune God who created humanity and wants the best for its world and those people. So as we read the Bible, it's important for us to understand that Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament are very much connected, created by that same God to help us live lives that are holy and pleasing to him. So Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the laws and the prophets, but to fulfill them. How does he do that? Well, Dave touched on this a little last week, but most scholars would say there are about 200 to 400 prophecies that were predicted in the Old Testament, were fulfilled by Jesus and recorded as fulfillment in the New Testament. I have just a few of those prophecies up on screen now. I think there's about 10 of the 400, um, but there's a lot. Some of the prophecies relate to Jesus' teaching. He would teach in parables, he would proclaim good news. Some of them relate to his ministry while he was on this earth. He would be performing miracles. He would be like another prophet like Moses. Some of them relate to his birth. So he, was born, he would be born in the line of David. He would be born in Bethlehem. It would be a virgin birth. They would call him Emmanuel, God with us. Some relate to his death. He was silent before his accusers. He was beaten and spat on. His hands and feet would be pierced. He would be forsaken. He would be buried in a wealthy man's tomb. And some relate to his resurrection. Like Jonah, he would be buried and rise again in three days. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament through what he taught, through what he did, through how he came to this earth. And ultimately, he's the fulfillment of this ancient covenant now, covenant, this is a term that's throw around, thrown around in Christian cultures. And I actually really didn't understand it very well until I went to Bible college so, and had it explained to me. So this morning, you are lucky. You are in for a free education. It will definitely not be the same quality as what you would get at Bible study with John Bible college with John Sweetman and Peter Francis, but I'm going to give it my best shot this morning. 
just to give you a deeper understanding of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. When I was married many years ago, I made a covenant with Alistair. If you are married today, you would have made a covenant as well. From memory, our covenant was pretty standard and it went something like this. We held hands and we looked each other in the eye and, we, and I said, I, Lee and Alan, take you, Alistair Stuart McPherson, to be my lawful wedded wife, everyone's looking at Alistair's very Scottish name there, <laughs> to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. As a sign of our covenant, our promise to each other, we gave each other a ring, a symbol of everlasting love. Now, can I say to you that this covenant has been tested on all fronts, as I'm sure many of you who have been married might have experienced the same. And there are times, especially in times of sickness in our house, that I would just love to check out. I would just like to check into a motel and just have a good night's sleep and not worry about it. But in those times, I remember in sickness and in health and I do my dutiful wife thing and I think, okay, please God, don't let me get sick as well. Please don't let me get sick as well. Well, a covenant is a promise between two parties. In ancient times, these covenants involved a ceremony of either walking through the blood of animals or the sprinkling of the blood. And this blood symbolised the seriousness of breaking these covenants. It's death. As we read in the Bible, God makes these covenants with people in the Old Testament. And these covenants are like a structure. They're like the skeleton of the Bible. Peter Francis used to say it's like one big long scroll of this earth's history. And these covenants are pivotal points in this, in this history. Well, right at the beginning, God creates the world. He creates all living things, including humanity. And in Genesis 1, 31... God says, sees all that he has made and he says it was not just good but it was very good. It was great. But then unfortunately humanity disobeys God and sin enters the world and there's this chasm that separates us from God but God in his relentless pursuit to regain our love has a plan. So firstly he makes a covenant with Noah. God is heartbroken by the total depravity of humanity at this stage and a world-devastating flood event occurs. But a righteous man called Noah is saved along with his family and animals. And after this flood event, God makes a covenant, a promise with Noah, a promise that humanity and creation will be preserved, a promise that he will never again allow waters to destroy life again. There's a preservation, a saving of humanity. A few generations later, God makes another covenant with a man called Abraham. He takes Abraham out one night and he shows him the stars and he says, your descendants will be as great as this. Through Abraham's descendants, God will make a great nation. And this nation becomes Israel. A few generations later, God makes another covenant with a man called Moses. 
He, um, with Moses, this time he doesn't make the covenant just with Moses, but with this new tribe, for this new nation from the Abrahamic covenant, the 12 tribes of, Ab- of Israel. And this great nation is to be set apart as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, his treasured possessions. And he lays down some laws, the Ten Commandments, to help this nation keep itself as holy. Well, unfortunately, like most of humanity, the tribe of Israel, they want to be great like all the other nations. So they don't want God as their king. They want an earthly king to rule over them, to help them in times of battles, to help them negotiate with other countries. So God grants them an earthly king, firstly in Saul and then in David. David is a godly king, and over time, David wants to build God a temple. But God has other plans in mind. So then God makes this covenant. He makes this covenant with King David. Instead of building a temple for God, God says that he will build a temple in his time. And it will be from David's line. God says it will be from his royal family. He will establish an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. Well, over time, this great nation of Israel go through a number of good kings, a number of bad kings. The kingdoms separate, and these kingdoms are overthrown by other rulers. And the people of Israel are exiled from their homeland, and some are badly punished for their faith. But there's always this glimmer of hope. God's promise, his covenant, his promise with his people is that one day he will bring to earth an everlasting king that will bring an everlasting kingdom. Can you see how God is building up this crescendo, constantly making covenants with his people, constantly bringing them back to him? And humanity, us, constantly breaking these covenants. But God has a plan. A few generations later... Enter Emmanuel, God with us. God in human form, performing miracles, forgiving sins, realigning his teaching, fulfilling that long-awaited promise of an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. At the Last Supper, we read in Luke that Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, in Hebrews, we're told that this new covenant isn't actually an addition of all the other covenants that had been going on, but it's a fulfilling of them all. It's a fulfilling of the long-awaited new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31, which says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to the world. This promise that from the very beginning that he would fix that chasm that separated us from this everlasting kingdom and the love of the everlasting king. Through Jesus' death, we are now saved like the Noahic covenant. We're now called children of God like the children of Abraham. We're now called treasured possessions like the Mosaic Covenant, and we now get to worship an everlasting king, and we look forward to an everlasting kingdom where we will one day see our everlasting king face to face. When you read your Bible, I pray that you will see this structure. I pray that when you read the Old Testament and some of these things don't make sense or you struggle with them, you will see this relentless pursuit of God for you, this grand plan of God's relentless love. As we wrap up, if we go back to the passage and we read at the beginning, we can see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But in verse 18, he also reads that Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. As we read our Bible, we can be assured that the Bible is everlasting. It will outlast this natural world. It will outlast us. The Bible was written with intent. It was meant to be fulfilled. It has been fulfilled and it will be fulfilled. The Bible has absolute authority. Even the smallest letter of it is established. And the Bible is trustworthy. Everything it says will be accomplished. I'd love to invite the band up now and as they come up, I said at the beginning of this message that my Bible is hands down the number one book that I have ever read. I also said that it's very precious to me because it reminds me that the God who was at the very beginning, the very beginning of life, that God created me. And he knows me. He knows all my fears. He knows all my failures. He knows all my wrongdoings. And yet he constantly pursues his love for me. If you have not experienced that love of God yet, I'd invite you to explore that. I'd invite you to ask Jesus into your heart. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Speak to one of the pastors or to speak to someone you know. Pick up this Bible and start to explore this deep, deep love that Jesus has for you. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I would encourage you to pick up this thing every now and then. Let it speak to you. Let it soak in. Let God's transforming love for you be revealed as you sit together with your creator, your saviour, your rock and your anchor. Let's pray together. Father, this book, the word, your Bible, it's not just a history book, Lord. It's a book about your salvation of the world. 
It's a book about your deep love for each one of us. It's a book that shows that despite our failures, you still love us. You still pursue us. You provide us that freedom, Lord. Jesus, you died on the cross so that we may no longer on this earth have to live in fear of condemnation. You wash our sins away. We release today and we say thank you. Jesus, you died on the cross so that we may have eternal life in an everlasting kingdom with you, a place where there will be no more more crying, there will be no more pain. You yourself will wipe away our tears, Lord. We so look forward to that day, Father. But in the meantime, whilst there we are on earth, we thank you that we're not a land and our pain and our suffering. We thank you that you are our comforter and you are our companion, Lord. And to this we say thank you. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love, King Jesus. Amen.